niching down and figuring out, okay, I'm just going to build something that's tailor-made and exceptional for this one persona. And then once I knock that down, I have a vision of what other personas this might apply to, and I'll just keep knocking those bolding pins down over time. Increasing the quality, narrowing the scope is like generally, I would say, is a good thing to do. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Cookie Shop, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's chat, I talk with Anand Sanwal of the market research company, CB Insights. What's crazy is we both started our companies around a similar time, and now his company's worth over $100 million, and he bootstrapped it for a lot of that period. This conversation blew my mind, which I don't really want my mind blown. I want it where it is. But he had a lot of amazing things to say about how to start a company and how to scale a company. And his company has a lot of really amazing data around VCs, around what industries are hot. So you're going to learn about that as well. You can check out Anand on Twitter at A-S-A-N-W-A-L. If you've ever wanted to learn about data, starting and scaling a business, you are going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. Uno, the difference between a good idea and a bad idea and how to identify that. Two, the fiction book that taught Anand the most about business. Three, the one submarket that's raising a ton of money right now and a lot of other ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive in the show, make sure you're on my email list. That's okdork.com. I have a book coming out next year. I can't wait to share it with you, but I don't want you to miss it. So on your phone, if you're at the gym, if you're in the car, if you're at a bakery, get a cookie and subscribe at okdork.com. That's okdork.com. Also, if you ever want to launch your own business, but you didn't know where to start, we just reopened the course Monthly 1K. It has helped thousands of people start their business journey, and I kind of believe it's going to help you too. Head over to okdork.com slash monthly1k and sign up. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Dapper Thatcher. That's a cool name. They left a review saying, keep it up. Noah is getting better and better at interviewing people. No, but really, great content. Otherwise, I wouldn't be bothering to write a review. Damn, that made my afternoon at 12.14 p.m. Thanks, man. And if you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. I check every single one of them. They also make me feel damn good. And the rest of the team really appreciates hearing it. How are you this Monday morning? I'm good. I'm good. I just got back from uh, my siblings and I and my mom do an annual trip yesterday. So that was cool. So, Is it just the siblings or do the families go? Just the siblings. What's that like? Cool. We just started to, we went to Italy last year. This year was a little bit, we, we couldn't get schedules to work as we went to Chicago. So it's a little bit different than Italy. But yeah, it's cool. And have you ever read that Tim Urban thing about your the rest of your life in 90 years or whatever you know that thing you seen it yeah it's like how many days you actually spend with your parents is like basically none yeah like after you're 18 you've spent like 90 percent of your time with your parents so, so it's cool it's a good time we just eat our faces off and walk around and see different cities so yeah it's a good time what do your parents like to do so my dad passed away a few years ago so um Sorry. so yeah so no it's uh it's mostly sightseeing and eating that's pretty much it. I think we might work in some wellness stuff in next year's, mm. some yoga, some hiking, some stuff like that. But yeah, I think we have to, you know, my mom's 73, so it can't be like, you know, we went to like one hot spot. It might be too strong of a word, but it was definitely like a, you know, a very bougie dinner place at like 10 o'clock, you know, we were sitting down and my mom was definitely like, wow, people eat late. It's very loud in here, but she had a good time. You know, I think it's a good way. So yeah, it's good. You know, she's a traditional Indian immigrant mom. And so it's cool. She's still 
seeing new stuff about this country, even though she's been here, you know, for a long, long time. I love that you do that. That's inspiring. My parents are coming. We're doing a similar thing, like just hanging out with them for the weekend. Yeah. I was feeling guilty this morning because I was like, can you guys leave Sunday morning like early? And then I was like, why don't you try to let them stay longer? (laughs) (laughs) Like how much time is appropriate? And then I was curious, how do you think your kids are going to treat you when you're older? And I I like the dynamic, by the way, that you go just with your siblings. You don't bring your significant others or kids. It's just you and the parent. Yeah, we do that too separately. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I hope they see a good example. They're going to do what they do. Kids treat their parents the way their parents treated their kids. I've seen that a lot, which seems pretty obvious, actually, once you say it like that, but your observed examples become your behavior. Yeah. So hopefully, but, you know, that's a consequence of hopefully doing these things. Like, it's not the outcome, but uh, but yeah, we'll see. I just hope they like hanging out with me, like, when they're older. That would be cool. How do you balance like doing your own life, taking care of your wife and then the kids and then also try to run a startup and business? I'm probably not one that should be giving advice on stuff like this. It's ebbed and flowed, right? Like you, you know this well, like there's the intense start period of a company, other things suffer. You know, now I'm able to find a little bit more balance, but I mean, I still grind pretty hard. There's certain things where I just won't miss stuff like the kids have. I don't know if I figured it out. I do take vacations with the kids solo. Just you and the kids. They're in different schools, so their spring breaks are not the same time. Oh, just one at a time you'll take them. Yeah, so I'll take one at a time. Those have actually been pretty tremendous. Daughter and I just went to Costa Rica. My son, who's younger, like likes history, so we just went to Boston. Those, I think, are going to be the things that I know I'll remember. I think they'll hopefully remember that stuff, too. Yeah. But yeah, still figuring it out for sure. How hard is grinding hard? What does that look like? Because I do these videos sometimes on YouTube, and it's like, ah, to be rich, you just work hard. and. Every time people say that, I'm like, what is hard work to you? What does grinding hard look like? So people know what the levels are at. In the beginning, it was honestly, it was, it was just hours. Like if I'm being candid, it was like, cause there's a lot to do and we we're a data company. And so there was always just like more data to get. Right. And like, we didn't have all these engineers and smart people that we have today. So it was a lot of like, just ground and pound, like go get the data, go send in, you know, a hundred emails to prospective customers. Your output was very correlated to your inputs. I think it's less so now, but yeah, I'm still working a fair number of hours. And if I'm not working, like I'm scheming, even if I'm not at the keyboard, I'm always thinking like if I'm walking somewhere, it's still on my brain. So that might still not be considered traditionally work, but yeah, I'm always scheming unless I'm with my wife or kids. I'm a hundred percent scheming all the time. For the people that don't know CB Insights, how do you describe it? Yeah, it's evolved quite a bit. We think of it today as a marketplace. So we sell to enterprises, investors, corp dev teams. And then on the other side, we have technology companies and we connect those two. So we connect them to data that the technology companies give us, information we extract from the public web. And then we also interview buyers of software and give them access to all of the insights of those software buyers. And so, yeah, the goal is to help them make quicker, faster technology decisions, whether you're an IT team, whether you're a venture team, or whether you're a corp M&A team. For the audience, I want to kind of go from how, where it started to where that evolved to. The original premise I thought was like, you have data and you sell it to VCs. Yeah, I worked in venture before. So it was like, hey, we have data on private companies and you know, you can buy a subscription. And so, yeah, that's very much where it started. I think the last time I saw you in person was like in New York, you were running like some meetup or something. And like, that's very much what we were. Yeah, I mean, you know, over time, we were bootstrapped for the first six years. So you follow the money, right, when you're bootstrapped. And 
And so I thought we'd sell to VCs and M&A teams. And then all these enterprises started signing up. And we were like, who are you? They would close really quick. They'd pay us more. And, you know, it's like the dream customer. But we didn't really understand their use case. And they're like, oh, we're from digital transformation or from IT or from a wealth management team at Big Bank X. And we're using you to see where technology is going and to figure out who our vendors of the future are going to be. And we're like, oh, like that's interesting, right? And so you sort of pull on that thread and you realize like, oh, there's a lot of people who do that at these really giant companies. And they have a mandate to use technology to lower costs or get to grow faster. And the world is no longer IBM, Oracle, Microsoft. It's the world you and I have been living in. It's like thousands of best of breed SaaS companies and just technology companies, and they are not equipped for that world. And we help them figure that out. So yeah, that's been the evolution over time. And then the big thing that sort of changed was companies started wanting to give us information. So we have this newsletter, which sort of sputtered along and was growing. And then eventually it kind of got critical mass. And companies were like, hey, I want to be in your report. I want to be in your market map. And we said, sure, we're not going to charge you anything, but you got to do what we call an analyst briefing. You got to give us some information about you that's not publicly available. Like, who are your customers? What's your price point? Why your product beats X, Y, and Z? And they were like, okay, if that's the trade, we're happy to do that. And so now we get thousands of companies submitting the sort of proprietary info to us. And so we've got this interesting kind of like, off the grid data set that like companies give to us. And then, you know, we started talking to their customers and interviewing them about what do you like? What don't you like about these products? And now we've got this like big qualitative data set as well. So how'd you have the idea and how'd you get your first customer originally? Idea was I worked in venture and M&A and I hated the products that we had to use. I always felt like I was still going to Google to find information. And I'm like, well, if I paid, you know, $20,000 for the subscription, why is my team having to go to Google? So that was the genesis of the idea. Candidly, like I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So like I'd looked at buying Subway franchises and, you know, art framing business. So like, I don't know if I necessarily cared that much about the problem as much as like, I'm just going to go start something. But this one actually like was good in that, like I felt the pain firsthand. That was the genesis. And then, you know, honestly, it was just content marketing. So we loved OkCupid back in the day. Yeah. Remember, they had this dating blog and it was awesome, right? And so it was like, okay. And then there was 538, which was by Nate Silver, the politics guy. Yeah. And we're like, you know, tech is actually a lot like politics. It's like a lot of talking heads who have strong opinions, but there's not a lot of data. And we were like, oh, maybe we could kind of take the irreverence of OkCupid, take the data-driven thing of both and start doing content marketing. And we put that out there into the ether, shared it with media, journalists. You would say, hey, listen, you know, you get the report, just link to us. And then somebody would see a link in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times or wherever. And they'd be like, hey, what's the CB Insights thing? And then free trial on this, you know, and then the landing page and, you know, all the CTAs and all that good stuff. And yeah, we just call them up and be like, hey, we got this thing. And, you know, the early days, it was like $495 a month. Now, you know, we're at um, let's call it a 50k annual contract value. So wow. as the customers evolved and the offerings gotten better, it's changed. But you know, I talked about earlier that ground and pound. Like the more calls, the more emails, the demos you did every day, the more you got to ring the register. So that's all I did in the beginning, and then eventually hired, got lucky and hired some people who helped scale things. Uh, you know, way beyond uh, the few folks that started it. I'm curious on that. Like at AppSumo, for me, it was startup people in Silicon Valley, maybe New York that liked these products and just wanted a better price on them. And I could help these products do their marketing. 
And that's evolved where our recent avatar customer that we're serving was a marketing agency. So like a solopreneur, one, two person team doing like marketing work for businesses, almost all online. So I'm curious, and a lot of people are struggling with this. How did you figure out which customers to follow and which ones to ignore? Because it was interesting. You're like, hey, we did VCs, but then we had these people knocking. And I think what I've noticed in business and marketing is like, how do I follow the behavior that people are already exhibiting? Not having to convince them. Is there people you ignored, by the way, as well as the ones you've listened to? And I'm curious to hear a little bit more of that evolution. I mean, in the beginning, you know, when you're bootstrapped or revenue funded, we were super promiscuous. If you had money and could close relatively quickly, we would take your money. So a good example of that, we sold to some individual angel investors in the early days, like, you know, because they were like, oh, 495 a month, we can handle that. The challenge was that those are people who aren't used to using data in their workflow. And so they would be blowing up our chat all the time with like support requests. They're like, what does this mean? Or like, you you missed this deal about, you know, that I did. It was like a 20K check. And I was like, well, nobody has that information. And so we realized over time that there was certain customers who like required a lot more support. And I was at this conference with a consulting company. And this guy was like, I need you to add two zeros to your price. And I was like, what? You know, slow down. What's going on? And he's like, I don't want to be behind the guy who's paying you three four ninety five a month when I need help. And I was like, oh, all right. Like support is another dimension that people will, you know, I always thought it was just like the product. And then it was like, oh, support's this other vector that people will pay us on. And so that was kind of eye-opening, I would say, for sure, right? And so over time, and then as the business stabilized, we realized, okay, like that prosumery use case isn't where we're going to go. And we're going to focus on enterprises, investors, and we still have universities and economic development groups and other folks, but you're trying to make money. And so like you, you just take what you can get. And then over time, you have the luxury of kind of narrowing it. Yeah, we weren't super disciplined in the beginning. It was just like, hey, somebody's willing to pay us and you can mm. give them credit with Stripe link, like go get it. What would you recommend for other entrepreneurs about identifying the right customer segment to prioritize? The biggest mistakes I've made have been of lack of focus. And so I would say... If I had any do-overs, it was lack of focus on the product, lack of focus on who the customer was. And so I think niching down and figuring out, okay, I'm just going to build something that's tailor-made and exceptional for this one persona. And then once I knock that down, I have a vision of what other personas this might apply to, and I'll just keep knocking those bolding pins down over time. If I had the discipline back in the day, I would have done it that way. I didn't. But yeah, I think like increasing the quality, narrowing the scope is like generally, I would say, is a good thing to do. It helped us find maybe product market fit. I think if we'd been a little bit rigorous, we could have said, there's a lot of X persona, let's go and build something really tailor-made for them. You know, go crack that nut, and then we'll go after the next one. So yeah, in product, in marketing, and in you know, our ideal customer profile, I wish we'd been more disciplined at times for sure, and just like narrowed in on somebody with a little bit more focus. Have you ever over-focused? And what I mean by that is like at AppSumo this year, our focus is like new buyers. Like let's expand the pie of people that are solopreneurs and, and reach out to them and appeal to them. And today, this morning, I get a comment that's like, hey, we're missing out on sessions, which is the overall traffic to the, the business. And it's like, well, we're focused on new buyers. It's like, you want to focus on two things? It's not to say either are wrong or right, but then you know, there's always trade-offs to be mindful of when you're making a focus or a decision. Yeah, I don't think we've been over-focused. It's actually a thing that I'm trying to emphasize even more now in the company is like ruthless prioritization. We've never gotten it down to one thing. 
you know, sometimes you'll ask folks and myself included, like, hey, what are your priorities? And you list like 10. If you have 10 priorities, you have no priorities. So this year, like we've got four key priorities. That's what we're focused on. As a company gets bigger, I think it's really valuable because if it's not one of those things, everybody knows like, okay, we shouldn't work on that. And I'm guilty of this. Like I get attracted to sort of the shiny object. Even for me, it's like, okay, hey, it doesn't actually solve one of those four priorities we have. We can't do it. In that sense, it's been good as the company's gotten bigger to narrow in on like, what are the key priorities and really thinking through those. And then if it's not part of those, you just don't do it. And it gives a lot of clarity, not just to other leaders, but like their people in their org. So yeah, I'm a big fan of focus. I mean, I guess if you focus on the wrong thing, yeah, that could be kind of lethal. You know, I think the thing is like, you got to think of something that even if we're wrong, it could still be lucrative or it could still be valuable, right? So like maybe we think it's going to be worth a hundred, but if we're wrong by half and it's still, and we end up with an outcome of 50, that would still be meaningful to the biz, right? If it's like, hey, it's only valuable if we perfectly execute this, hmm. then like that's a problem, right? So we're getting better at that. We have a top three in our company and we kind of revisit it and we do talk about it and we check status, but I don't think it really is implying to everybody else, like these are the three, right? I think it's like, oh, those are three and. Can you share your priorities? Yeah, so we have one I'll, I'll talk about. So we have like this, uh, a product-led growth, the PLG motion. We have... A bunch of customers who are like smaller corporations or smaller investment firms who we've kind of priced out of using CBI. I get emails in response to the newsletter and somebody was like, listen, I have $10,000. Can I just, can you send me a payment link? Can I buy one seat? And for a bunch of years, we were like, no, that's not our model. We don't, we can't support that, all this stuff. And so like last year, I was like, okay, just for kind of shits and giggles, let me see if we can do that. Right. And the process, because there's all this like, machinery behind the scenes, was like, you got to set up this instance in Salesforce and you got to get a contract. And it was like, you would think we were like SpaceX trying to put somebody on the moon to get this person's $10,000. And it was like, okay, there's enough demand here. And we kind of sized the market and we said, okay, there's, you know, X tens of thousands of firms that we think could be prospective customers, but just that aren't because of our pricing and our structure. And we're not equipped to service them, support them in our current way. And we said, okay, we're going to go actually not seed that part of the market and go after it. We had to build like a e-commerce enabled kind of seat. And we had to figure out who's in and who's out. And then there's a bunch of like routing, you know, somebody comes in from a bigger customer, but who found that they're actually not able to avail themselves of that pricing, right? Like that's only for a certain size customer, right? And so like, there's all this machinery behind the scenes that has to be created. And so that's been something that like, we've got somebody on the executive leadership team who's like, who owns that. We've got specific goals around how much revenue that's going to drive. And then at every leadership team meeting or every kind of, let's say, third leadership team meeting, they're doing a readout on like, here's what's going well, here's what's not mm. going well, here's what I'm going to do. The status report's interesting. The most interesting part is if it's going well, what am I going to double down on? If it's not going well, what am I doing to fix it? If we're off track, what are we doing? You know, is, is it a conversion rate problem? Is it a pricing problem? Is it a whatever the challenge is? Like we got to get into the weeds. So that's like an example of one. And then how we sort of are trying to drive discipline around how we manage it and get to an outcome. And the reality is like we might, it's early days. I want just launch, but you know, maybe six months in, we're like, oh, this was a bad bet. 
if the inputs have been good, then we were like, okay, at least we made the right decisions along the way. And maybe we got to go revisit why was our thinking flawed on this? Like, what did we miss? But yeah, like the key is like we were constantly making progress. How did you figure out what to prioritize? We said we had three financial priorities for the year. We wanted to increase our new ARR, we wanted to increase gross retention, and then we wanted to drive up margin, right? Like those are our three financial metric outcomes we wanted. And so every initiative that was going to be a priority had to ladder up to one of those. So if you can't show that's going to help one of those, immediately it's excluded. It couldn't ladder up to revenue? Yeah, new ARR, so new you know, annual recurring revenue. So yeah, absolutely. What that ends up doing is it ends up getting rid of lots of science projects on the product side. The most painful things to have built in retrospect started with, wouldn't it be cool if, right? Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. And then nobody really wants to pay for that, right? <laughs> also, if you kind of start talking about it and then people are already committed to it. And as a leader, you're like, you have to kill or pull back. It's tough. The thing is, you know, like if you've hired good people, like as I mentioned, you have and we have, there's actually very few bad ideas. But there's good ideas and then there's like exceptional ideas. And you basically have to say no to all the good ideas and only focus on the exceptional ones. So we figured out these kind of key financial operating metrics we wanted to focus on. And then everybody kind of comes with, okay, here's what I think can drive those. And then it's a productive sort of battle royale, right? For like, which idea is the best, right? That is really based on the quality of your thinking and the quality of your preparation. Good ideas are those that come with a set of facts and information. Bad ideas are like, oh, you know, Noah and I agree that this would be good. That's not good, right? A bad idea is whoever is the hot company in Silicon Valley is doing it. Don't give a shit. Why is it relevant in our context and why will we be successful with it? So there's a way of presenting ideas that is better at CBI than some other ways. If you bring facts and information to your case, and then, yeah, we kind of like pick from amongst those. And then that became our priorities at the start of the year. And, you know, we'll revisit them and, you you know, we kind of stage gate them. So if like, if things are going well and they need more resources, they get more resources. If they're not going well, then, hey, like, what's your plan to fix it? And if they're like off the cliff bad, then it's like time to like cut bait on this and go pursue something else. That's kind of like the rough methodology, right? Like planning's that's like an art, you know, it's like you get some stuff right and you get a bunch wrong. And I would say like, this is the best year of planning we've done. How do you know it's the best? And what did you do differently this year than the past? So one, I think we got ahead of it. Often we were like kind of building the plane and flying it at the same time, right? Like we're in the new year and we're still like figuring out the priorities. You know, then we're like four months in or five months in and we've just figured out the priorities. And it's like, you know, now we only have half a year to actually go action. So one, I think we got ahead of them. Two, I think we had sort of this, we'll call it like an idea meritocracy in terms of like everybody bring your ideas and we'll go through and hash through them. And then I think three is we set individual ownership to each priority, right? Like there's somebody on the leadership team who's responsible for it. Because I think in the past, sometimes we've had sort of like this jump ball. There wasn't clear who owned it. If you have unclear ownership, it's like, well, everybody's doing whatever they think they should do, but it's like nobody's actually the quarterback and you need somebody to be the quarterback who's calling the shots on it. I'd say those three have probably been the things that have made it Good. The best thing, though, is that idea meritocracy part is like actually seeing ideas and saying like, good, no good, or, you know, come back with this. I think like that's been big. 
I like the ownership. I definitely resonate with. The thing I wrote down is that we're having like a H2 summit planning Wednesday, like what you said about revenue focused ideas. So it's like, here's the targets I care about. That gives you the structure for thinking about the ideas and bringing data related to that. I think otherwise, potentially, I would speak for us, it's a little open-ended. We had the exact thing, right? It was just like, they're all good ideas, but it's like, to what end? You know, it's kind of like when you ask somebody like, hey, do you want to go to dinner? And it's just like totally open-ended versus like, do you want to go out to this neighborhood and get this or this? Like, you know, now it's just much easier for people to paint within those lines. And so now when we said like, hey, ARR growth, retention, gross margin, okay, I can get behind that. I know what's inbounds and what's out of bounds pretty quickly. I think actually the first set of ideas that we ended up discussing were of a higher quality because they all had to ultimately be additive to one of those priorities, right? It wasn't like, hey, I care about some random like thing. And it was, no, 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 walk it back. Like, how's it going to drive one of those three? And if they couldn't, it was like, okay, well, then go back to the drawing board. We can't spend time on that. I like that. You said your top metrics was like ARR, margin. And retention. I might copy it. I'll do it like Sibians. That's a good idea. All right. <laughs> One thing I'm wondering, it's Anon. 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 Because I'm so used to Adnan. This morning, I'm going for a walk. I'm like, it's, it's Adnan? No, it's Anon. Anon? What did you do to level up your leadership? Who did you have around you? What did you consume? Where did you learn all this from? Again, like it's evolved. I don't know if these are universal rules. I think sometimes it's like startup land. People talk about them like they are. Like the person who's good from one to two won't be good from two to four, won't be good from four to eight. They're not these like laws of physics that are universally true. But I think I have seen that like sometimes the person who's great at one stage isn't great at the next stage. I don't know if you've ever seen that. This is framework. Pioneers, settlers, town planners, right? Pioneers are the people who like forage a new path and find the thing and make it work. And then the settlers come in and set up systems and the town planners like help it grow and flourish. Roughly, that's been my experience. There's just different stages of company growth. So you have to make sure that the people that you have at the leadership team have been people that are good for that stage of growth, including myself, right? Like there may be a point at which I am not the right person for CB Insights because it's outgrown my skills. I still like to believe that I have something to offer, so I'm still here. Where the mistakes I've made have been where somebody is, if we're at stage N, we look for people who've seen growth at the N plus one, max N plus two from us. If somebody's from Salesforce or Oracle, they're not going to be able to hang at CBI. And it's not anything about a deficiency in them. It's just that our entropy level is too high. And the business card doesn't do as much of the heavy lifting, like the name on the business card. I remember when I was at American Express, like everybody would call me back. In the moment, you're like, oh, that's because they think Anand's like dope, right? And then you realize like, no, they just care about American Express. When I left, all those people who I thought would be like super helpful didn't return my calls, right? And that was like, oh, that was because the logo on the business card did most of the work. And so we're a challenger brand. So I think the one thing we look for is people who are sort of stage appropriate. They've seen maybe the next level or two levels up. That's been big. I think anytime we've made mistakes has been hiring people who've been just too many stages removed. And then in the hiring process, I think we've gotten better there with the leadership team. It's like we always do like a case study and not like a McKinsey, like, you know, how many gumballs can you fit in a 747 kind of case? Like, a, hey, here's some data on our company. Sometimes we make it illustrative so it's not real data. And we say like, and here's the problem and here's your prompts. 
and come in and you're going to sit down with me and a couple of members of the leadership team and we're just going to talk through it the way we talk through any problem that we're having. And in those sessions, I'll sometimes, even if I agree with them, just take the counterpoint just to see how we disagree. That's been really good because you can actually see how good somebody is at thinking about things in our context and actually being able to push back how they work in our sort of setting. Do they go above and beyond in that case? That's been really good because if you don't do well in that, and there's been times where I've gone against my instinct and somebody's output there and I've still hired them and like 100%, those people haven't worked out. That's been really good. And then references. I take those incredibly seriously. So for anybody on the leadership team, like I do them myself. And I'm basically looking for reasons, candidly, not to hire the person, even though they're very far along in that process. Like if I don't see high conviction by the references, I usually ask, like, hey, you've worked with other people like this in your history. Like where does the ABC person stack up? And if they don't say like they're the best person I've ever worked with in that role, it's not a definite out, but like I'm going to push on that now with the next reference. So the case study and references at the leadership team level, and then knowing when the company's outgrown them, that's the most agonizing kind of thing because they're like somebody that you've personally grown to like a lot and they've done great things for the business, but business has gotten too big for them. And some people see it and they're like, oh, no, no, I'm like a 10 to $20 million person. Like, that's what I love. And they like, they're just self-aware. But a lot of people aren't, and then like, that's a hard conversation, and you've got to find a way to sort of respect their contribution, but also say like, "Hey, listen, like for us to go from twenty to forty or forty to eighty or eighty to one sixty, like this isn't a fit." Those conversations are challenging and sometimes difficult. Any books or advisors that you've had or courses that you've benefited from in learning organization leadership management? It's not a management book, but the book that's had the most impact on me from a business perspective is The Goal by this guy named Eliyahu Goldratt. Okay, tell me more why you like that. It's the weirdest business book I've ever read because it's written as like a fiction book. So it's just a systems book and it talks about like in any system, there's one constraint that's restricting you from achieving what you want. You have to focus on solving that constraint. And once you solve that, the constraint will move elsewhere is sort of a summary of it. But that book has been like, I would say, transformational for me in terms of thinking about business as a system and how do you break it down into systems. So yeah, I love that book. I've read that like multiple times and I think it's weird because it's written as a fiction book, but it's really, really good. I've only read it once and I was like, felt more like operational research. How do you be efficient at the company? And then what's the bottleneck holding back the other bottlenecks? Yeah, that's what I took away. But I think everything's a funnel, right? Like in a company, you're trying to hire, it's a funnel. You're trying to market, it's a funnel. Sales is a funnel engineering is a funnel. We'd always talk about like on the product side, there's all these ideas the team has, we need to like find a way to surface the ideas. And this is a few years ago. And it was like, our ideas are a problem? Or are we like, is there an execution problem? Like, is our development time taking too long, right? This is like from four years ago. When you actually broke it down, we didn't need to spend time getting more ideas. We needed to get the ideas we had developed quicker. Mm. So we could have spent a bunch of time trying to get more ideas, but it actually doesn't solve the problem. Those ideas would have just sat in inventory because we couldn't get them into production. Yeah, I liked it because a funnel is a process, is a system, and this the goal is like just really good at seeing like, okay, just focus on the biggest problem in any funnel. And then once you figure that out, the problem just moves elsewhere in the funnel and then you go solve that and then you just keep solving that. What are you noticing in the markets today? You have really interesting data about, it sounds like more enterprise than the consumer side, but I'd just be curious, like, 
what obviously AI and chat GPT stuff, I'm wondering what are the things that people aren't noticing that you're noticing? Yeah, so I think the big thing, I'll break it down. There's sort of like the enterprise side, there's the investment side, and then there's the acquirer side. So on the enterprise side, 2015 to 2021, like it was all about new growth, right? It's like, hey, what new businesses are we going to add? Like, how are we going to drive more revenue, more revenue, et cetera? You know, now it's become about how do I improve operations, get more efficient, deal with risk. It's gone from like the revenue side to the expense side, right? And so when you're thinking about the technologies that are doing better in large enterprises today are often those that like will help them save money, become more productive. In 2021, it was like, hey, we can add this new business opportunity to you and you can go sell more, you know, ABC. So enterprise is just more cost conscious. That drives a lot of the technology decisions. On the investor side, you know, it's just a tougher market, right? Like valuations have totally reset which is good for if you're writing new checks, right? Because you're probably getting companies at a better valuation. I think a lot of the sort of tourists in the in startup land have probably shaken out, right? Like, you know, people who are just like startup founders because it was fashionable, like they're kind of realizing like, oh, this is harder than it looks. And, you know, I think some of those posers are probably washed out, which is which is a good thing. For an investor, I think the challenge though is if you have these companies that you funded in 2021 at 100 times ARR, that company may never grow into that valuation, right? And so what does that founder do? What do you do as an investor with that company? It might be a solid company, but it just never grew into that sort of lofty mark that would have been set. You know, so you're seeing it now, there's more down rounds, there's going to be more company failures, because folks are focusing on their best bets at this point, they're not going to just like, kind of spread the cheese on the pizza evenly the way they were in 2021. <laughs> and then acquirers, there's like your financial sponsor, which is like your private equity. And then there's your strategics. And counterintuitively, you'd think like strategics are like, oh, this is the best time for me to acquire. I get the best deal. But their stock prices are down. So they're actually kind of risk off. Like they're not doing deals. And private equities, they're the ones who are probably the most acquisitive right now. They're also generally a pretty disciplined buyer, right? There's not all these, you know, quote, synergies that they're going to get. So they're going to value you in like a really real way. And so I think there's a bunch of like late stage startups that private equity is probably going to go swoop in and pick up on the cheap because they're good companies that are sort of, you know, we put out some data recently. I think like 86% of unicorns were still hiring, right? And like a grown headcount like in the last year which is kind of shocking, right? You'd think like everybody got the memo like on cost containment and stuff, but clearly people haven't. And so I think private equity is going to swoop in and sort of fix these companies that are bloated and sort of overstaffed and just going to say like, hey, listen, you've got like your earlier comment about focus. This is working. Stop with all the science projects and like just get buckled down on this segment. So I think it's a good time to be in private equity. Investors, I think if you're disciplined, it's probably the best time to find good deals, but you've got your existing portfolio you got to deal with. And then enterprises, it's just shifted more to let me cut costs and let me figure out how to improve operations and not, you know, I might not be looking at like autonomous robots and all the sci-fi stuff that I was looking at a couple of years ago. So yeah, the tenor's definitely changed, I would say. Within that, you know, generative AI is like, if you're a founder listening to this, like you should find a way to sprinkle that into your pitch deck. It is the unlock for fundraising right now. It's like the one sub market that is 
flying, right? I think there's like, there's already 13 unicorns in generative AI. You know, no other segment is seeing that kind of growth, like fintech, digital health, like all the darlings of the last few years are all down. Yeah, Gen AI is definitely like the place. There's lots of brain power going to sexy ideas. And so there's going to end up being a shakeout. Like there's probably way too many Gen AI copywriting tools. There's way too many Gen AI travel planning tools. These are like the problems that everybody's like, oh, I felt that problem. And then everybody goes and starts. I think like some of the less sexy generative AI stuff, like the folks that are doing generative AI to help lawyers and accountants and auditors, that's probably where returns are going to be if somebody figures those out. But, you know, that's mm. smart people focused on unsexy problems is often like where there's, there's some good outcomes. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the money flows into stuff that everybody has felt in their day-to-day life. And then, you know, why can't TripAdvisor build that travel booking tool? Like there's really no reason that they can't. And we're seeing that in real time. Like Microsoft like is moving really quick, as quick as startups in some instances. So this idea that like big companies can't move quick, I think we're starting to see that that's actually not the reality. And so, you know, sometimes founders like we in our delusion or you know, arrogance or whatever we want to call it, or like, oh yeah, we'll just move quicker. And it's like, well, no, no, no. Like, look at the evidence right now. That's not the way it's working. You actually need to have some fundamental insight, and not just like, well, we'll out execute big lumbering, slow ass company. That doesn't seem to be the way it's working right now. It's very counterintuitive about the big companies, but yeah, they are moving quicker. Like, because back in the day, it was like, oh, they they can't compete. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's still a subset of them. It's still like your large tech companies, right? I'm not sure like life insurers of the world are blazing any trails across the board here, but the folks that we might think of as you know who we can compete with, they do move really quickly. And so I think it's something to be mindful of. But yeah, there's gonna be some really interesting, you know, like the co pilots, right? Like there's, you know, the code development co pilots that GitHub's made, but there's gonna be co-pilots for doctors, for lawyers, for all sorts of other trades that I think are going to be pretty compelling. And we're seeing some stuff there, but that requires domain knowledge that requires dealing with regulatory. But like if you can build businesses there, like that's where there is potentially some sort of moat. Generative AI is like definitely caught everybody. It's been cool. Even at CB Insights, we're using it. It's the one hype technology that I'd say like is actually, I feel is real, right? Like we've kind of we never got into the NFT thing. We've kind of like, you know, we've been generally gun shy on all these things. And this is the one that I feel like is, has got some legs to it. There's a lot of innovation and in tech that's coming from around the world and places that just like didn't have infrastructure that sort of leapfrog infrastructure that we had, right? Like, you know, if you, this is a trite example, but you know, Africa and India, like they didn't have landlines. They just went right to mobile phones, right? And so, you see that again and again in these markets where they didn't have bank branches. They moved right to mobile banking, right? And so I think there's concepts now that it's not all the innovation in the world comes from Silicon Valley as much as folks might like to believe that. Like it's now, you know, you'll, you'll see really compelling, interesting things, you know, like live streaming, shopping, like that's actually kind of more of a China thing than it is a U.S. thing. And now that's, that's floating back to the U.S. And so I think there's, interesting things that one can learn by observing markets that are much further from where we are that we continue to track. Is there business ideas that you would do if you weren't doing CV insights? Like at AppSumo, similarly, we promote a lot of software. So you kind of start seeing like 
we saw rider tools about a year ago, yeah. if not longer, and they were like exploding. And now it's definitely like people have the tool or they have the one they like and the image thing as well. Any areas that you're like, you're curious about or you'd recommend for people to explore? Data is the kind of thing that I look at. My framework for data businesses, is it like a high consideration purchase? Is it opaque where the information's just not out there on the web? with this frequency of purchase, right? And so like, you know, we, we launched this thing where we're like interviewing software buyers, right? And so there's not good information about purchase prices, software, and what people think about them. It's generally like I'll ping Noah and be like, hey, what do you think about XYZ, right? But at enterprises, like they rely on peers a lot. And so I think that's a framework that I use, right? I, I'll give you one that I would I don't think I'd ever launch, but I think like I felt this pain, like, and I think it's a data company at its core is like, trip advisor for summer camps it's a pain in the ass to go find summer camps and you go talk to your friends i'm like why can't you just go and say like i want a science-based summer camp that's sleep away that's in this area where like it's got you know this star rating like that i think would be cool i mentioned it once on twitter a bunch of people said that like we're starting it i haven't seen anything that's at scale so that's one the other one that i like and these are unrelated to cbi is I think like somebody who starts like a WeWork for remote team gatherings mm. could do well. Since like people aren't in offices and like, you know, our leadership team gets together, I don't know, every six to eight weeks in some city. And it's like somebody's doing it off their side of their desk and it's a lot of their time. But if you could just say like, hey, I've got eight people, we're there for three days. We want to focus on like camaraderie and like we need you know a room with three whiteboards and then we want to go hiking and they're just like oh yeah like you can take a subscription to any one of our off-site locations i think that would be cool i think that trend is growing as the office becomes less and less of a thing so i like that that'd be i think if somebody was building that i think that would do well just given the the secular trend towards remote work yeah i think there's some variance because of limitations and evolution Things are expensive. Like Airbnbs, I find very expensive. And then I, yeah. there's limitations of how we're working. And depending on your age, if you have a family, there's some opportunity there. There's peer space, which I think is running out spaces, which is kind of that. Yeah, I think the space thing is like the base layer of the problem. It might be just like, hey, we just want to have a fun offsite, right? Like it could just be that. Okay, what does that mean? Like, you know, is that wine tastings? Is that your style? Or is it ATVs, right? Like what's the you know, what's the thing for your team? And like, it requires, like, it's actually to do it thoughtfully. It requires several people who's, it's not their day-to-day -day job. Having somebody who could do that, I think would be pretty killer. And I'm sure there's agencies and stuff that do it, but I just wonder if you could turn it into like a technology product and you could just charge a subscription for it. And it's like, if somebody's out there doing that, we might become a customer. Hell yeah. Well, the last thing I wanted to hear more from you, it's been so cool to hear updates and how you guys are doing and a lot of learning. I appreciate you sharing. How has your marketing evolved? Because as I think about you from the years past, content marketing has been your bread and butter for a lot of how you built the business. Can you share more what that is originally for you guys and then how that looks today and the impact it's made? Yeah. I mean, it's still like data-driven content is still like our number one thing, right? We put a lot out there on the web. We publish it to our newsletter, which goes out to 600,000 some odd folks. So I think that's still our number one way. But, you know, as the company's grown, like we're more full stack, right? So we do paid Google and Bing and LinkedIn and all that stuff. And then we've got, you know, we spend a fair amount of time on SEO just because we've got a lot of content about these companies and 
their relationships and whatnot. And so we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that SEO traffic is kind of going up and we're getting people's eyeballs on those. We've always tried to build trust with the content that we put out. And that content is either discovered by Google or it's discovered by media partners who will like, you know, hey, I'm writing about generative AI. I need some statistics about what's going on there. And they'll come to us and then they'll, you know, pay us back via that link or that mention. I'd still say that's the nucleus, and then we've become a more complete marketing organization by doing the other things, you know, webinars and all the good stuff that a complete marketing team does. But yeah, I mean, we don't do podcasts, we don't do YouTube, even on content creation, it's been very text and graphics focused. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's just been like what we feel like we know best. And so we've kind of stuck to our knitting there. How has that evolved, though? Because I think originally it was a lot of blogging. Is it still as much blogging? Is it like... You guys use your data, create content, and then just post everywhere? Is there certain areas working better? I mean, we will share it on you know, the social channels, but we're not doing like a lot of cross-posting and things. I'd say like if media or influencers in our world reach out and say, hey, I'm writing this up on X, can I get some data? We'll certainly help them out. But yeah, it is blogging You know, still. Most of it now is moving behind the paywall. So we used to give away a lot of it for free. And now we just last month said like we're going to move it all behind the paywall. So we'll still give, you know, if it's a series of charts, we might give away the first chart. And then it's like, hey, if you want to read the rest, you got to go be a customer. And then we push that out by the newsletter. Like the newsletter is still our number one way of creating awareness of what we do. There was some time when we didn't focus on the newsletter as much as we should have. And, you know, again, like if I go back to that narrowing the focus, increase the quality, like we should have just doubled down on the newsletter like all day long. And when you say double down, you mean the amount of subscribers what specifically? Yeah, like really focus on, you know, I think we could have done more vertically oriented newsletters, right? Like we have a main newsletter, we have a digital health one, we have a retail one, we have a fintech one. Like we cover so many industries, we could have probably figured out ways of addressing more industries. And then, you know, we're five days a week. But there was a period where we were like, we cut down on the frequency. But, you know, you don't want high frequency garbage content, right? You want high frequency for it to always be good. Increasing the frequency, if we can maintain the quality bar, would have also been the other thing I would do. And then just like keeping our tone. Like there was a period where we started playing it safe because like people were getting offended and ruffling some feathers and we started getting a little vanilla. We should have doubled down on like, whether you like us or hate us, you're going to have an opinion, right? And like there was Mm. 18 months where we were just kind of like, in the fear of like somebody being upset, it just became a boring newsletter. We should have actually leaned into the fact that people didn't like certain elements and others loved it. And we should have just like made it more polarizing. And I think we're going back to that. We played a little safe for a while. And I would say that was a mistake. How did you know to pay attention to it? Or how did you realize like you were ignoring it? I get all the emails, the responses. And so I read them all. You could tell like there was just a dip in response rate. When you're not saying anything interesting, why is anybody going to respond to you? Before, when you're saying something interesting, even if people are like just Looney Tunes writing you back with stuff that you're like, oh, this person's clearly off the reservation, you're like, at least it got a response. Or other people are just like, oh, I love that. That was great. Right. You're like, okay, good. Like it's resonating or it's, yeah, it was just getting a response. And I saw that come down. And then I think candidly, like, We'd send it, and like, if you asked me, like, would I want to read it? The answer would have probably been no. That's a good barometer. You got to write for one person, whoever that person is in your mind's eye. That if this person likes it, a lot of people will like it. And so I think we just got away from that, and we were like worried about like, oh, like 
this person said this bad thing before and like, you know, people didn't like that. So we should remove the mention of them in the newsletter. And I'm like, what we're talking about has nothing to do with that other thing. It shouldn't matter, right? Like it's relevant to this topic that we're talking about. And, you know, still certain things like that are like rails that I don't want to touch. Like, you know, when we mentioned about politics, I don't want to ever go there. But yeah, it was just like, it got a little vanilla. And honestly, even the haters, like they tell everybody about it. So it's great. They're sending it to all their friends being like, yo, look at this guy on and he's an idiot. And I'm like, amazing. Like at least now, like one of them might be like, oh, this actually is interesting. I think like that would be the other thing that, you know, we shouldn't double down on is just go a little bit harder in the paint sometimes when, when, uh, and not pull up and kind of try to take the easy way out. Yeah. Now reading The Big Leap, it basically is a book about that where as you get success or as you get momentum, you will tend to potentially pull back a bit yeah. and how to notice it, just be with it and then make decisions based on like intentionality and what you want. No, hundred percent. I mean, I think that's like the challenge of incumbency a little bit, right? Like as you get bigger, you're like, oh, I got to protect this. I got to protect this nut that I got, right? And you're like, now I got to take less risks. And so the things that got you here, you're like, those things go away, right? And so I think, yeah, like it's, uh, and I, we're by no means an incumbent, but when we had nothing, it was easy to go be stupid. When you get bigger, you're a little bit more worried about being stupid. And so, but I think like being weird and being stupid sometimes is a good thing. Awesome. I do got to get going and I appreciate you chatting with me, dude. It was good seeing you, man. Yeah. Also great wisdom. It's good to see like how much you've grown and, and how you run the business. A lot of inspiration. Cool. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's good. I still follow your stuff. Your content in the early days, honestly, because I didn't know anything about a tech startup. I remember reading your stuff and I was like, this guy's figured it out. It was really good. So I'm still a fan. And yeah, the podcast has been great. And uh, I listen regularly. So thanks for putting that stuff out there. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I love the millionaire stuff or the billion. I guess now you've moved on to billionaire. So <laughs> yeah, that stuff's been really good. It's been an evolution. The Kinko's founder, that was a fire episode. Oh, dude, he was he was phenomenal. Yeah, he was so good. He was just like, you know, he's like plain spoken. Straight. No couching things. Yeah, he was he was excellent. So All right, we'll keep with it. I'll uh, hopefully maybe every few years, not every decade, we'll we'll chat. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Awesome. No. All right, man. Take care. All right, brother. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. Go check out CB Insights and Anand on Twitter. That's at A-S-A-N-W-A-L. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go eat fried pickles together. I, dude, I straight up love fried pickles. Tweet, Instagram, TikTok, at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you think of this episode. I love hearing your feedback. Also, go check out AppSumo.com. If you are not on the email list, it is the cutting edge, latest and greatest tools at insane prices for solopreneurs especially if you're a freelancer or an agency or if you're into marketing, go to appsumo.com. Also, I think you all know about the YouTube channel. Y'all know what to do, but go to youtube.com slash okdork and make sure you like and subscribe. Finally, a couple of shout outs to the amazing team who helps make all this happen, Jason at podcasttech.com. I don't know how I keep mentioning you, Jason, and you're not fully booked with clients. I'm pretty sure you are, but you just like hearing your name shouted out. So I'll do it again, Jason at podcasttech.com. He definitely makes these episodes sound so much better. Thank you to Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, Jen, Sylvie, and Tommy. We have some new people on the team for all the magic y'all do. I want to give a big shout out to the engineering team over at AppSumo. It takes an army to win a war. I don't know if we're at war, but there's a, a lot of amazing people, design, product engineering, DevOps, management, all that kind of stuff, making the site be online, fast and sexy for all of the Sumolings out there over at AppSumo.com. Have a purple day. What's your favorite card game? <laughs>